small town music. This is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away, a song away, a song away. Hey, everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis. And I'm Kyle Dodson. And Kyle joining us tonight in the get. We have a guest. We have a musical guest. Yes. They brought their guitar. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be exciting. I'm a fan of this person. Yeah. Uh, I saw him perform about uh, was about two weeks ago, I think, at the Canyon Club. I think that's right. By the time this drops, probably about five weeks. But uh, you know him from his top ten hit. It's the, this is how we best know him. But he has lots and lots of music that we're going to play tonight. But his, uh, his big hit song went to number eight on the charts. Mm-hmm. And it was Magnet and Steel from 1978. And say hello to Mr. Walter Egan. Hello, Walter. Hey, Pat. How are you? Hi, Kyle. Hey. No. all the ships at sea. <laughs> <laughs> Walter is fresh from another gig that he played tonight at the Canyon Club. I did. Open for Southside Johnny. Is it still the Asbury Jukes? It is. They're still juking. And you're playing with a band, and I'm afraid that I'm going to pronounce it wrong. So what's the band that you're playing with currently? The Malibus is... Uh, the Malibus, but it's B-O-O-Z. B-O-O-Z. This is my high school band. And after I had success with Magnet and Steel, <laughs> mm-hmm. we reconstituted the band. John Zambetti is the, uh, the leader of that band. And uh, when I was in high school, I was 15 when I got my first guitar. It was an acoustic, and I learned the chords from my Kingston Trio songbook because I was a big <laughs> Kingston Trio fan. I knew whether they sounded right or not. And John had been taking lessons for a little bit longer than I had a guitar, and he had a band. And he said, well, if you get an electric guitar, you can be in the band. And, of course, this being the mid-60s, <laughs> it was like, of course, of course. And so I somehow convinced my parents that a Fender Strat and uh, Princeton Amp would be in my best interest. Of course, being an only child, it wasn't always that hard. But uh, So they bought it for you. Yeah, actually, I grew up in a household where my mother was a uh, copy director at an advertising agency, and my stepfather was the art director. So, mad, so it's like Mad Men. Yeah, so they're kind of in the entertainment industry. Exactly, and so they encouraged me in, in that direction. That's good because, you know, sometimes back, you know, not, I'm not going to say way, way back when, when Walter was young, but you know, a lot of parents weren't always, <laughs> always encouraging of the arts. So That's that was true. great. That's true. You know, they don't understand it. Even my mother, you know, having lived the life that she lived mm-hmm. after the band broke up when we moved to Boston. Yeah. And, uh, that was, uh, Walter was telling us that, uh, before, uh, before we started to record that his, his first band, uh, they were in Boston. And you can, t- you can yeah, say it well, again. Basically, the Malibus you know, morphed into a band called Sageworth. And then that's when I took over the band after John went into his other studies. He was a very studious <laughs> lad. And so um, we had an offer from a, a, a respected musician and producer, Chris Darrow, who um, was in Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And he had been recently playing with Linda Ronstadt as she came through town. I've heard of her. Yeah, and in her <laughs> band that day were uh, Glenn Fry and Don Henley. And so in one fell swoop, I had my intro to L.A. from living in, this was this is when we were in D.C. And so uh, I was gung-ho to move. Annie, the lead singer, was ready to go. The rest of the band thought it was too much of a risk to move to L.A. So and how, we, old, how old of a kid are you at this point? This is a... 
the year out of college. So they graduated from college, 21. That's when you take the risks. Yeah, exactly. What else is there to do? Yeah. You know, we, we had a chart on the wall, you know, rating the people who were courting us to be, uh, you know, give us a record deal. Cause you know, that's, I mean, exci- we, that's really exciting. We wanted it. You know, we had yeah. the, the MGM, the money grabbing moguls chart was on the <laughs> wall and we had little stars if people would like offer this or that. And it was kind of fun, but, but yeah, that was a, 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 mo- a major bone of, of discontent there. And so we moved to Boston. We came up, uh, face to face with boogie at this time this was 72 maybe Mm -hmm. moved to boston and we were kind of folky rocky kind of country rock folk rock and so we we learned a little bit of rock and roll up in boston so it was good i mean we were managed by the same people who managed the james montgomery band and james montgomery were going to be the next Jay Giles out okay. of Boston, that, that kind of, you know, it was great stuff, and it was real energetic movie uh, music, and, and, you know, we went with it, but didn't go that far with it. We kind of broke up after a while, but in the meantime, Graham Parsons, country rock legend, had recorded a song that I wrote called Hearts on Fire, and so it seemed like a good time to move to L.A. Emmy Lou was moving to L.A. She was an old friend, you know, from the D.C. days we were in. So yeah, so there we were. And is uh, so hearts on fire. Was that your first uh, recorded or s- song that you sold as a as a as a yeah. songwriter? Yeah. Well, tech was the first that anybody knew about. Mm. There was a local artist in D.C. Yeah, I went to Georgetown and stayed in D.C. for a couple of years after that. Um, named Esther May Scott, Mama Scott, and she put out an album that had a song of mine called "Come to Me," which was kind of like a bridge over troubled waters kind of song now at, at this time do you have a, a manager or an agent for for your songwriting or are you doing it all on your own i had a you know this business of music book the uh, billboard this business of so music. that means that you didn't have to give any of that money away then right well technically nobody wanted it yet right but so. i mean when when <laughs> graham parsons records your song you got to be getting some mailbox money from now that. well that we did have to give it away that was yeah that was a, a situation where a guy named Eddie Tickner, mm-hmm. who had been involved with the birds and stuff. He was handling Graham, and uh, Eddie was a sweetheart. He died a few years ago. But, um, yeah, um, we did have to give up the publishing. A little bit of percentage. Yeah, well, right. basically the publishing, not the writing share, but the publishing was... Oh, uh, you did? Well, I had, like, a little bit of it, mm-hmm. but it was mostly for Eddie. And, and, you know, and so when I moved here in 74, I was able to go to Eddie and say, Hey, can I get an advance on the royalties I'm going to get from the Graham thing? And And, and you did. And and I did. And so that kept me afloat for a little while. And oddly, the amount of money that I made on it at that point, Mm -hmm. which is about a couple of hundred dollars, is still a couple of hundred dollars every quarter or whatever. Really? Yeah. And so it's, it's, you know, it's one of those songs that, uh, endured somehow well Graham you know who knew I mean I loved his stuff and and I loved Graham Parsons because he took the band the birds which Mm -hmm. was my favorite band which was a psychedelic rock band and made it into this traditional country band which was like well really unheard of for a rocker to play country straight-faced and not with tongue-in-cheek you know I mean you know like Ringo used to sing the country song and it's funny that you're from the East Coast because you, uh, 
you have that California sound like in your blood. I don't know. Did you did you always have that? Were you fan, you were fans of that music, and I so you aspired to that? Yeah, very much so. Because uh, when you when you got out here, then that's you got in to that scene with those people. I well, mean, I did aspire to that, and that's you know meeting Chris Darrow and meeting uh, Don Henley and and Glenn Frey and Linda. Of mm-hmm. course, Linda was a, a great boon to songwriters and and from the beginning when i got a guitar i really thought of myself as a songwriter mm-hmm. within the first year i started writing songs and pretty much haven't let you know i haven't stopped yet and so linda was someone who championed new songwriters and and so it was you know yeah because linda ronstadt all her her albums are always you know outside songwriters right well she doesn't write no which is the beauty of it no but she knows what her instrument is and she yeah. knows what her strength is so yeah. then you look for the best writers to to use that voice for so that's yeah. cool so we you must have been pinching yourself when you get out here and all of a sudden you're you know rubbing elbows with all with these people well very much so for even the though they were in, in the early stages of their careers too you knew that this was this is a happening scene that uh, that's what i say Kyle, a happening scene <laughs> but uh well that's what it was really yeah. i i had aspired to this music this music was what inspired me um starting with the beach boys mm-hmm. and then you know ricky nelson and you know the wrecking crew records and phil Spector. The Malibus made a demo that we brought around in 1965 in New York City when Phillies Records was there mm-hmm. before they moved completely out of L- into L.A. And uh, it was this silly, you know, going to Malibu, it was called. And it wasn't that silly, but I mean, yeah. it was a surf song. And, and Danny Davis was Phil's partner and... And so we sat there in the office and we could hear Phil in the background with his very high voice. I don't know what he was talking about, but it was like, okay, man, we're, we're really going to make it because it's Phil's back. You know? Yeah. You know, and that was the thing. We, we had the ability to, to sort of block out reality and, and live the dream of, you know, hard day's night or, yeah. or, you know, what the beach boy music, was bringing and the movies too. I mean, the silly beach party movies, the LA ethic, you know, that really got to me. And, you know, and so I felt very natural coming right to it and, and falling right in with it. I, when I moved in April of 74, it was when Bernie Ledden had just left the Eagles. So I wrote a letter to Glenn. I said, "Hey, man, you want to you want to audition?" I'm, you know, I didn't. Audi- I said, "Hold the spot. I'm coming." <laughs> I mean, li- literally, it was like, "Well, that's that, very that ballsy. The, that's great." Yeah. And so I met with him at the Troubadour mm-hmm. after I got here, and and you know, he he had this way of, yeah, "Man, man, I know you're gonna make it. You know, just persevere. You know, you just persevere." <laughs> and so I took that to heart. You know, and it, even though we're pretty much contemporaries. You know, he had gotten up the wrong few steps from me. And that was funny. I I was talking to someone this evening. You know, I went through four years of college. I was an art major and graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts. If I had known that I was going to get into music, I think (laughs) I would have skipped that, even though I love everything that happened during those years. And, it, you know, whatever, it made me what I am. But, yeah, you know... And so, and so Glenn, I think, was a little bit ahead of me, but even though he, I think he was a few years younger than me, actually. 
So yeah, you, uh, I have to say, you look very youthful. Because well, I, you know, I go see a lot of shows, and we see a lot of of uh, I'll say the veterans out there, and uh, and you have a big smile on your face. You seem to have a a great attitude about the well, business, uh, no matter how the ebbs and flows go. And um, and I think that's I think that's probably a, a wise thing. Well, I think so too. I mean, I I get to do what I love to do. Maybe not as much as I'd like to be right, doing of these days, yeah. but but I still am able to do it, and that that means a lot in life, as you probably know, as most people find out that when they can do what they love, or at least can love what they do, and get paid for it, and you're never working really. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true, and, and you know, and the tough thing is with the, any career in showbiz, in music, especially that it's a trendy thing and it's built in, you've got to suffer for it. You, you know, I think there are very few who just kind of go, Oh, I'm going to do this and then do it and yeah. are on the top and you have to pay your dues. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's the truth. And, and so I have felt that I've paid my paid, dues, paid but, I, dues. but I still love to do what I do. And even, you know, a gig is a gig, right. and you, and I love writing songs. I love recording songs. I love it when people hear those songs. And, Even better. And yet, you you pay your dues, but you move out here in '74, and by '77, by '77, you you have a record. I know that's, on Columbia Records. That's crazy. That's, a, that's Springsteen's label. Yeah. It's Bob Dylan. Yeah. It's uh, Aerosmith. I mean, it's it's that's crazy. It is very crazy. So tell us, how did you, this, I'm holding up the, the first album, Fundamental Role, and, and then the people involved in this album, it's, I want to hear about this too. This album is produced uh, by Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Dwayne Scott, and, and you, and you get yeah. a producer credit too. Yeah, well, I produce most every one of my records right. in some way. And that's good, get that well, producer credit. Well, that's what, getting into music as I did, and with actually John Zambetti also, we would listen to records and we would pick out things and we would, you know, we would analyze them. We'd pick them apart. We, you know, we idolized Brian Wilson as a creator and as a producer. Yeah, as and doing so, everything. A, wiz yeah, a wizard. And so studio was, wizard. That was the big light that was shining from California to us in New York City to be doing a surf band in high yeah. school in New York City. And so, so this comes out in 77. The, the way that happened was that band broke up. I moved to LA mm -hmm. at the same time Emmy Lou was recording her first. Emmy Lou Harris? Emmy Lou Harris, who was a friend. What if it was another Emmy Lou? Yeah, no, Emmy Lou <laughs> no. ba Baker. Don't you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Emmy Lou Harris uh, played the same circuit in DC that mm -hmm. we were playing. So, you know, it was a natural to be following her, especially after all that happened with Graham. Graham dying in 73. Yeah. So this was in spring of 74. She had gotten her deal together. And I had an offer from Chris Darrow, the same guy who wanted to produce right. Sageworth, who lived in Claremont, saying that, well, I could stay with him and come to L.A. and, you know, make it happen or whatever, you know. And so I told my mother after the band broke up, she said, well, what are you going to do to get serious now? And I said, well, I'm going <laughs> to move to L.A. and make a record. And she said, oh, well, okay. All right. And, you know, to have the cojones to say that, yeah. I mean, because the great, I mean, the greatest satisfaction of my career for me is that nobody really showed me how to do this. This is kind of something that I 
gravitated toward. Right. This I is shared. this was your dream. Yeah, and I shared it with some various um, players and writers and and friends through the years, and we kind of hashed it out, yeah. as it were. But this was like no one had you know this was unheard of you know what you going to make a record what do you mean <laughs> you know and the thing was i was insecure enough about my singing that i had always been in bands with people singing my songs and so even that was how i got that deal i came out here and chris darrow's manager was a guy named greg lewerk and greg worked at united artists i networked when I first came out here. I, I lived in Claremont. I thought I was moving to LA and I was 40 miles <laughs> east. I like, missed it by that much. <laughs> so every day in my Conaline van that I got from the, the solution of the band, I would drive the 40 miles and come and hang out in Hollywood and, and visit people I knew. And Greg was one of the people I knew. And, and so he knew me and he got to know me more and more. And as I put together a band out there, you know, he became interested mm -hmm. in it, and so it, it gradually got to the point where I had a band which performed six out of seven of the songs we did at this hoot night at the Troubadour were written by me, but I only sang one of them. Mm -hmm. I, I Literally, I really thought everyone else sang better than I did, and so I just went, yeah, okay, you can sing it. I'll just play lead and do the arrangements and whatever, and so we played a hoot night in February of 76, at the Troubadour, seven songs, and at the end of it, I was offered the deal. You sang one song, and you were offered the deal. Yeah, but this was... Is that song on this album? It is. It's the first one on there. It's Only the Lucky. Well, let's hear that, since we're talking about it, Kyle. Let's yeah. hear Only the Lucky from My 1977. First, first single and first song I wrote in California. That's a fantastic song, first of all. Anyone who has never heard that, please go buy this song, buy this record. But this is a... Now, does this album... Does this does this come out... When does Rumors come out? Because this came out in 77. Uh, Lindsay and Stevie are already in Fleetwood Mac. They had big success with the self-titled 75 album. But now, like, the, inside this album, there's... there's You're actually standing behind Stevie. It's almost like you're like like it's not your record, but this is your record. But look look, look at this kid; he's behind. Look at the picture this, on the wall, the little picture on the bottom. Oh yeah, that's you, and, and Stevie's behind you, and right here. Stevie's wearing the cheerleader outfit from the uh, from cover. Oh my God! Yeah, okay. I want to talk about cheerleaders in a little bit too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to find out what's going on there. Uh, so yes, yeah, Stevie and, and Lindsay are all over this album. It, you, 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 well, this the, is how that happened. Um, they were working on rumors at the mm -hmm. time, and as the, actually the first time I met uh, Lindsay, after, well, I met them at the a show they did at Santa Barbara 
in general that was kind of like, yeah, yeah, we're interested. Because I had this deal offer in hand. Mm-hmm. It was actually to do six songs, six sides, okay. three, three singles for United Artists okay. in England. And with that in hand, we were looking for a producer. And, you know, to me, it was like, oh, Brian Wilson, of course. <laughs> you know, and Brian was kind of... <laughs> yeah, never, for the moon. And never, never land. And I said, well, how about Todd Rundgren? Yeah, well, yeah. how about Buckingham Nicks? It was like... Who the heck is Buckingham Nix? <laughs> you know, I thought Don Nix. That can't be. Don Nix was like a Southern rocker. Right. You're not. You're not thinking it's a not, tiny lady. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they said, no, no. These are people who are there in Fleetwood Mac, and they want to maintain their identity. Here, listen to their album. And someone gave me Buckingham Nix. So you listen Buckingham Nix album, okay. and I was like, oh, well, yeah. This is I like this. A little bit overly orchestrated for my taste, but you know, Keith Olsen had actually produced that. Um, so yeah, I was like, yeah, well this, I'm intrigued and, and, and were you familiar with the, with the Fleetwood Mac album with Rhiannon and all those songs? I had at that point to me, Fleetwood Mac was Bob Welsh and Bermuda Triangle, okay, which is, has, had been on in concert on TV recently. And it wasn't until the summer of 76, I believe that over my head was the first single that broke from the White Album, as yeah. they call it. Um, and so I was aware of that, and Rhiannon was shortly to appear on the scene. But these two people at, at that point were just musicians. They weren't... They weren't. No, they weren't. They in weren't. fact, in the, so I was researching before I met them, and there was a magazine story about mm-hmm. them, and it had them mislabeled as... Lindsay as Stevie and Stevie oh, as okay. Lindsay. So yeah. to me, that when I met them, that's what. I, I, and so that was. And your middle name's Lindsay, and it, it is. is. Yeah, so that's part of the cosmic things that yeah. started. It was because Lindsay is influenced by the Kingston Trio and by the Beach Boys very much, and he understood where my songs were coming from. The same name, mm-hmm. Lindsay. Their band, Fritz which is a whole other story yeah, yeah. from Northern California. I don't California. even know that name. I say, yeah, yeah, like I know, but I don't, I don't even that know was, Fritz. That was the band that, that they were in just before they moved to L.A., the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and my band was Sageworth. Annie McLoon's birthday falls within like a week and a half of Stevie's birthday. Okay. And so I think we were doing parallel things on separate coasts, and it just... It was always one of these things where, you know, oh, you did that, I did, yeah, I did that. And, you know, we were discovering all these things we had in common, which was great. And, and of course, and Stevie, you know, blew me away. I was, a, I am a big fan of female vocalists. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. I love and Chrissy Hind is my favorite. Chrissy Hind blew me away during the last uh, concert with Stevie yeah. that they, they yep. came by. I saw, I saw, we, I saw that, uh, that yeah. show here at the Forum. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So... So now you get, um, it's so weird because like Stevie's all over this album. Well, that was, it, it almost thing. feels like it's, it's like she's in your band. Exactly. Well, that is how we, you know, sussed it out. I was like, well, you know, guys, I love writing songs and I love playing and I love to sing oldies, but I, am I going to, you know, that was what I said when they offered you were me like, the am deal. I really going to sing all that these was songs? It. it was like when they offered the deal, they said, you mean you want me to sing them? And they said, yeah, we want you to sing them. So what we did was built a studio band 
that made me feel like I was, cause I had always been in a band mm-hmm. and I always, and so that's how we put it together. And Lindsay and Stevie were in my band. Stevie. Yeah. She literally is on, I think eight out of 10 or eight out of 12 songs on there. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm only seeing one that one or the other is not on. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, oh, well, she's so tough. Yeah. She's so tough. I did. I produced that with Dean Torrance. Yeah, uh, from Jan and, Jan and Dean. Dean. Yeah, so you got your, you, was, you you lived out your your surf rock dream. Well, that that was it at the time. Yes, uh, Kyle, which song do I have where I have a time code? Uh, won't you say you will? Let's hear that from the from the wherever it's queued up to, and then go to that time code. But here's another song off of uh, Fundamental Role. Jump to that time code, and that's where we really hear a, a lot of Miss Nicks. So good. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, you're a guitarist. Lindsey Buckingham's a guitarist. Was he, um, were you amazed by his skills or are, or are you as good as Lindsey Buckingham too? Oh, I wouldn't consider myself as good as Lindsey. Um, Lindsey, uh, yeah, I was, I was very admiring of his, his skills. And, but I was not necessarily intimidated. Okay, by good. Them, you know, and so... And he he was you know kind enough and generous enough as a producer to realize that I am a guitar player and and that's a big part of these songs. So yeah, because there's some songs know. where you'll you'll play the first solo, he'll play the right, second, exactly. or, or vice so, versa. And I was just I, when I read that because I I know how great of a guitar player he is from oh. seeing them live so many times. Oh gosh, yeah. What was a young Lindsay? And again, I, I, this isn't the Lindsay and Stevie show, but it is it is part of the beginning yeah. of. Yeah, sure. Of Walter Egan's career, so I have I just have little questions. Uh, when I see Lindsey Buckingham in an interview in 2017, he seems very pre- pretentious. Maybe I would say, is he more fun loving back in the day? Is he yeah. more? Is he a little more? Yeah, having fun. Oh yeah, I don't know that he's having fun in 2017. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and, I've, and I've I don't know him, so that so that's too. me, an outsider who's a fan. Like I love that Buckingham McVie album that just came out. Yeah, I yeah. really like that album, and yeah. uh, and I, I I own all the Lindsay stuff. I own all the Fleetwood Mac stuff. I'm a big fan, but he just uh, that's so I'm glad to hear that he's a little more fun loving. Oh, he back is. then. Oh, sure. Um, you know. My analysis of it is partly there's that dynamic with Stevie that's never going to go away between right. the two of them. And and Lindsay, for all his acclaim and all his accomplishments, 
we'll never get the iconic no, see, thing that Stevie, Stevie has. Stevie can Stevie can fill up the forum. Mm-hmm. She has the hits. She has solo hits, and she has Fleetwood Mac hits. Yeah. When I see Lindsay, he's at the wheel turn, and it's not always full. Right. It's just how it is. But also for me, when I um, Lindsay Buckingham, the stuff he does with Fleetwood Mac is so amazing. But then when he does his solo stuff, he it's a little bit more experimental, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's as accessible. Whereas when Stevie does a solo album, it's very accessible. That's true, Stevie. So, uh, Lindsay is a, very much a creative genius, yes, as they say. Yeah, m- much like is. like Brian Wilson. He, Absolutely, he is. He, is. Yeah. he he has uh, the ability to conceptualize mm-hmm. sounds and and to search them out and and to create them. He does it in a subtle way. His guitar playing is very unappreciated, I believe. I, I believe I think, too. I think yeah. he's because when you see lists of guitarists. He doesn't seem to be on those lists. And then when you see him live, you're like, how is he not at the top of the list? Right. He's picking, strumming. He's all over the place. It's right. crazy. But he's understated. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that might be it. And he doesn't necessarily play in the in the blues right. style that, that seems to be the rock, you know, true. guitar That's true. god style. But no, he's the very much impressive uh, guitar player. And, and he uses the studio as a tool. And that was the fun thing. I mean, the second album, first album was a bit of a dynamic uh, melange, you have to say. I mean, he, Stevie and he were still going through their, their paces of mm-hmm. tit for tat and whatever they were right. doing with one another. And yet they wanted to maintain Buckingham Knicks as a brand. And so they agreed to do it. And we found in the studio that Occasionally, they would get into their kind of, and, you know, I, I mean, I had to serve as an ambassador in some mm-hmm. ways, and ultimately what we decided was that Stevie would help more with the vocal production and okay. arrangements, Lindsay more with the instrumental that production makes sense. arrangements. Our engineer, Dwayne, was always there, so, you know, Lindsay would come in during the day, and Stevie would come in later that night, and they wouldn't necessarily be there at the same time. And that worked much better as we worked it out. Um, you know, and of course, I was falling for Stevie at the same time. Well, how, which, look at it. How could you not? Who well, isn't? of course. And, and so, as I was saying before about Sageworth, mm-hmm. Annie McLoon, who has a record out on RCA, she put one out around the same time okay. um, as all this was going down. She's a wonderful singer and a wonderful girl, as they say. And she and I had been in college together mm-hmm. and together in the band the 24 hour a day I love you I hate you yeah, yeah, yeah. what are you doing you're so you understood the dynamic between yeah, Lindsay so and Stevie that dynamic was very clear to me and but I couldn't help but fall for Stevie and so you know I started asking her out I mean so they agreed to this in the spring of 76 and agreed to do your record yeah okay and the one caveat was that we had to work around the rumors schedule and their touring schedule. So it became a little frustrating for me, ready to rear and to go, mm-hmm. I got a record deal. Oh my God. You know, and then, okay, we'll be back yeah. in three months. It's like, oh no. Well, I'm amazed that they were making rumors, which is like, you know, like the number one Fleetwood Mac album of, of all time. Oh, sure. 
and and then they're also working on on Walter Egan this this new guy's debut album. Yeah, it's kind of uh, it's interesting. It like is. I wouldn't even think that they'd have time to do anything else. Yeah, like I would have thought. Oh, they were they were in the studio for rumors twenty four seven for a year. Well, you know, rumors didn't start at this point. They mm-hmm. were. I mean, the first time I went to the studio where Steve, uh, where Lindsay was working. <laughs> Um, he was doing the uh, harmonic guitar overdubs on uh, Secondhand News. That's incredible. And that Wally Hyder. to see that. Yeah. And it was like, and he, all I could hear was just the harmonics. It was like, oh, this is cool. I wonder what that is. You know, and, and <laughs> right. so the legend that it's become, um, it, uh, it, looking back, I, I did keep a, a diary and a journal through that time. I haven't really read them again in a long time. But um, I know that we worked it out somehow mm-hmm. because from the beginning of the summer of 76, that was when we started working on the record. And it was released in March of 77, mm-hmm. Fundamental Role. So somehow we got it done during that period. And uh, I'm very happy that we did. It, uh, you know, and in the middle of that, in December of 76, was when I had my chance to be with Stevie uh, as a as his, you know I dated her so to speak. If you, you guys went out, you you went out, you were we went you out, we went her. in. I did, I did, it all. <laughs> <laughs> I did it all. Um, yeah, and you know it's did did Lindsey Buckingham find out about this? Well, you know this is eventually kind of, both of us kind. Of, I don't know if he ever did or not, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth. I can't believe that he didn't. I doubt he listens Especially to the show. I think the, we're okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, if he doesn't know by now, he's never going right. to Um Yeah. It, uh, here's the weird backhanded compliment, I suppose, I got at one, at the, toward the end of this month of being with Stevie. Mm-hmm. Was she said, you know, you and Lindsay are so much alike. And it was like, is this good or this bad? You know, you yeah, just yeah, have yeah. this big breakup with him. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it just seemed to be way more complication than we needed to try and get this record done at the time. And I liked Lindsay a lot. I didn't want to alienate him, right. certainly, as he's really... It seemed main, like you like Stevie a little bit more. The main driver in the studio. <laughs> right. Well, outside, yeah, it was yeah. like, whoa, this, you know. And... Um, this Walter Egan living the life, coming out here... Telling his mom I'm going out to make a record. Yeah. You didn't tell your mom you're coming out to sleep with Stevie Nicks. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think she would have appreciated it. Anyway. But here's well, the thing, well, though. Then during the recording of that, there's a song called Tunnel of Love on, uh, on that record. Tunnel of Love. And Stevie was doing the background, yeah. her wailing banshee background, mm-hmm. uh, one night in Studio B, not Studio A in, in Sound City. And it was three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, and I was driving home, and it was like this. I've got to write this song, you know, because I had been working on yeah. the framework. I pulled onto the one hundred and one in this low-slung Lincoln Continental with a diamond window, with, you know, neon lights underneath, license plate, not shy, and I was like, "Oh, that sounds good." And then whatever it started. And not shy is the, the the name of the second album, but okay. right, and that's the main line in "With You I'm Not Shy, yeah. Magnet and Steel." By the time I had gotten home, basically the the new lyrics to "Magnet and Steel" were written, and uh, that's how it came about. So that that's a song that's that's uh, written for Steve. 
written about her. Written you, know, about you are a woman who's lost to her song. That's the second verse, and that's well. Let me play. Yeah. Let's play one more. Let's hear one more. I have a. Let's hear one more track off a of fundamental role, and then we'll hear Magnet and Steel. Uh, this one feels so good. Wow. You get the fade in, or are you gonna? I think I cued it myself. Yeah. So Let's do a fade in. Just for someone like you to have been along. I know that I've been reborn when I think of your smile. I hear your song. How does the first record sell? Um, how did it do? It got good reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, that was back in the day where you, where, where the record company gave you lots of chances. Oh yeah, well, that now if your first album isn't a hit, you're oh, it's goodbye. A very different world. It's very terrible. It, yeah, famously, uh, even after when Magnet Steel was the highest ranking Columbia single in September of 1978, mm-hmm. as you pointed out. The Columbia Convention happened at Century City, and I had this appointment to have a meeting with Walter Yetnikoff and Bruce Lundvall, Walter Yetnikoff being the president of the CBS group, and Lundvall was president of uh, Columbia. And, you know, oh, hey, we love your record. We (laughs) loved it from the beginning. And I'm going, well, you know, how can we make the album sell through? I'd like to be the album, you know. I don't want to be just the singles. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if if I don't know if you censor yourself on. We podcast. don't. No, you can say whatever you want. Okay. Well, so so Yetnikov, who is an interesting character. If you don't know about him, you should look him up. He had there's a book, a few books about him. He goes, you know, if CBS can't live up to its bullshit, nobody can. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, good. That's good to know. <laughs> and you know, it took five albums to break Billy Joel. It took, you know. Buzzkegs, three albums, and we're, you know... Our Speedwagon, like nine albums. We're here to break artists, which another way in my mind, it was like, yeah, right. Anyway, so yeah, that... uh, Break artists or break artists? Well, yeah, so I actually... Okay, so after we got Buckingham Knicks on as the producers, Mm -hmm. then Greg Lurk, who had been just the single manager... Got into a deal with a guy named David Krebs, who was the manager Lieber of, and Krebs. Of, of Lieber and Krebs. So they handled Aerosmith. Exactly. Yeah. Who were on Columbia, mm-hmm. as you pointed out. And so... They started working the buzz, for you. The buzz on Fleetwood Mac was just starting to go. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, well, here's... And so, yeah. And so that's how I got a six-album deal on Columbia. Let's hear, uh, let's hear Magnet and Steel. And then I want to... Always talk good to about, hear it again. Talk about some movies that this was in. Now I told you so you ought to know. It takes some time. 
song whenever I say whenever I say to anyone I go uh, you know the song Magnet and Steel and they say no and then I sing it I can't sing but I sing it and they go oh yeah I know that song it's just one of those it's, it's just one it's of those bizarre, songs. It's one it? of those yeah. songs so in uh in 1997 uh, this song is featured in Boogie Nights do you know in advance when your song is going to be used do you have to sign oh yeah you do have to work that out beforehand and do you actually the first movie that it um appeared in not as my version of mm-hmm. it. They re-recorded it. Uh, a guy named Jeffrey Steele actually sang it, ironically <laughs> enough. Uh, or maybe it was Jeffrey Gaines. Maybe it was Jeffrey, Jeffrey Magnet. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Jeffrey Gaines. I think uh, Fuzzy Memories. But Why wouldn't no, they this use was, your version? This was in 93 because it cost too much. You know, the, But it still cost it. something for them to re-record it too, right? Well, sure, but okay. not as much as you'll see when I finish my story about these movies. <laughs> Um, so this was a movie called The Night We Never Met with Matthew Broderick. Okay. And uh, these guys share an apartment and, you know, hilarity ensues when one of them is mistaken for the other one. One is like a, you know, chauvinist pig and the other is a sensitive guy. And it's, you know, it's one of these things. So that was the first thrill of being able to go to a movie house mm-hmm. and sit there and, and yeah. oh, there it is. Oh, now, yeah. does, does the guy who covers it, does he try to imitate you? Yeah, very much so. They try to make it yeah. sound as much like the original. Of course. So that people maybe think yeah. it was the original. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, there have been three reggae covers of Magnet and Steel. I don't really like when they people reggae up a song that's not a reggae song. I know, song. but it's so funny to hear a reggae singer trying to sound like me to me. That's yeah. just hilarious. You probably don't care when they do it because that's just well, more yeah, money for no. you. Well, although... They're notorious. Reggae re- records don't pay notoriously, <laughs> I, but that's another story. This, uh, anyway, so, so, so I was approached by New Line Cinema okay. um, for this movie that they were doing called Overnight Delivery. Now, Overnight Delivery is a film that kind of bypassed the theaters to go mm-hmm. directly to the home, <laughs> um, <laughs> starring Paul Rudd and Reese Witherspoon. You know, So they're good actors. It's just a silly movie about... Uh, I don't even know what it's about. It's about. Let me see. I, let me see if I can find it. Let me see. It's, what it's, here's the high plot. school sweethearts come back together after long uh, distance relationship. Yeah. And then she goes to the university of Memphis. And, and so he sends her this letter that he has to intercept. And then, so it's, they're chasing this kind of FedEx van around the country to get, it's just really silly, but the first scene in it uh-huh. is these high school sweethearts, Charlize Theron, I believe, is the is the woman, and uh, Paul Rudd. They're they're you know they're kind of oh we missed you so much, and they're in this car, and they're and she has a present for him, and she gives him this present, and he takes it out, and it's a heart on a chain. Okay, and he goes, oh okay, that's nice. And then she kisses him, and she has one too. And, and they it, cling together. And they cling together. They're magnetic. And she says, "Don't you remember our song?" 
and then she sticks the cassette in, and there I am singing. Well, that's a pretty Maggie great way stuff. for this. The song is the whoever wrote the script exactly was yeah. really we, thinking about this song. Well, which is why we had to negotiate this because it's used three times in the movie. Ah, it's this, and they and they can't really do the movie and, without that song either, right? And they don't want to pay what it's going to cost for the original three times, so they have Matthew Sweet re-record it. Oh, I do like Matthew with, Sweet. I do too, and Lindsay helped him with it. I think he might've even produced it again. Okay. And so, uh, and then Matthew sweets version is the other two versions there. But in the meantime, as we were negotiating mm-hmm. that one, they said, well, we've got this other movie. It's, it's, uh, you, know, it, you may not want to be in it. It's this Burt Reynolds, <laughs> R rated Burt Reynolds movie. And at that time, Bert, I love that they're calling it a Burt Reynolds movie, boogie nights. Oh yeah. And it, and it was like, and Burt hadn't really made his comeback yet. So he was still kind of like, Burt Reynolds, are you kidding? Isn't he doing dinner theater in Jupiter, oh Florida? God. And it's like, no, no, you know, it's, you know, they, they it, anyway. So Do they, they tell you it's about the porn industry? No, not so much. They just said it's an R-rated <laughs> Burt Reynolds movie. It's R-rated. And I said, well, that's, you know, okay, you know, why not? The more the merrier. So, and it's, that's, you know, the moral of the story is you, you never know, you know, it, that, Overnight delivery was this big deal three times. They wrote this, this title into it and mm-hmm. all of that. And nobody knows that movie, but Boogie Nights. Yeah. Is, is, I forget is, what, what's, did you just watch Boogie Nights? Do you remember the scene? No, I, I cannot remember the scene. Well, the so last much. scene where he decides to become a recording artist, mm. he's in Sound City where I recorded okay. Night in Steel. Yeah, so that's, it, that's where he sings, you got the touch. Yeah. yeah it's terrible. That, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But you don't, do you remember the scene in Boogie Nights where they use, or is it just... Playing? Oh, yeah, no, that they're in the van, and they're pitching the, you know, the spy porn. No, that's oh, right. that's, that's right. right. Yeah. And, the, and yeah, no, they use about two minutes of it in there, so it's, it overlaps that scene, and then they go, and he's got the award, and he's going, we're going to make even better ones this year, you know, and it's, and it's underneath that, so... Yeah, it was a great usage that they did of it. it uh, and, and it was also used in Deuce Bigelow and Male Gigolo. Yes, it was so. the love theme from Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. <laughs> the, you know, the first version, the, the good one. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not the, later the second ones. one. No, no, not no. that terrible one. No, this is the one where he falls in love with the woman with the wooden leg and, and pulls <laughs> off, he's pulling her leg off. And it's in the background of that scene in that particular movie. Uh, I want to play another song off of Not Shy. Kyle, could you play uh, Just the Wanting? Here's a good one. One of the early uses of syndrome. Oh. Like a magical surprise. So you live off what you feel. Just a glimpse of paradise. Then you wake and find it's gone. And all that's left you is the song. Just the warning alone was worth it Just a thrill and desire Just the warning alone was worth the fire Just the warning alone was worth it Just a thrill and desire Just the warning alone and if we could also go, let's go right into Hot Summer Nights. Hot 
that song been recorded by someone else? <laughs> yeah, it's the most uh, covered song that I've ever written. Did John? Did um, was his name John Stewart? Did he do? A, <laughs> did he do a version of that? This isn't a leading question, is it? It's not actually. It really is not a leading question. Okay. I swear to God. No, he did. He did a version of it. He called it gold. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm hearing when I hear this. Oh, well, John Stewart came up to me in <clears throat> around the same time we're talking see, about. See if you can find that. September of '78, uh, when it was all happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he introduced himself, and I said, "Oh my God, you know, I learned to play guitar in the King yeah. Country." You know, yeah, yeah. God, I love your record. I brought. He was on RSO, which was, and the president was a guy named Al Corey. He said, I brought Al Corey the, your record, and I told him, This is what I want my record to sound like, Hot Summer Nights. Who was your drummer, and can you introduce me to Lindsay? And I was like, Well, well, sure, of course. I can. Lindsay loves King's Trio, too. You know, we're, <laughs> you know, we're big fans, and blah, blah, blah. So off they go in their merry way. And S then. Story uh, pisses me off. And then, yeah. Okay, so I'm in a cab, and because Lindsay also Lindsay Buckingham produced "Not Shy," the second album, also. Yes, okay. indeed. Yeah. Keep going. Oh, yeah, he and Stevie did not. Well, she wasn't in on the production. Right, right. She just sang on Richard Dashett, uh, who was uh, Lindsay's became Lindsay's producing partner with yeah, Mac yeah, Fuller. right. He okay. was in on so rumors. And let's finish this John Stewart thing. Yes. Because, okay. So John Stewart, you know, and I say, well, of mm -hmm. course you can, you know, and, and so following spring. Well, first of all, the my version of Hot Summer Nights was the follow-up to Magnet and Steel, but mm -hmm. the records, you know, Magnet came out in spring, mm -hmm. and the stations that went on it early in 78, by the summertime, knew that Hot Summer Nights was coming next, okay. and they were playing the heck out of Hot Summer Nights. Trying to get Columbia to re release it mm -hmm. was, uh, no, no, we're going to make sure Magnet goes all the way, and they were, they were very... They, you know, right. it lost its bullet a couple of times and they made sure it kept going. Okay. However they did that, but <laughs> I'm not asking. Back I'm not looking. Yeah. You don't know. Um, That's and, their job, not right. yours. But they finally released uh, Hot Summer Nights. I think it was November of that year. And it just seemed like it, it's time had passed. The following spring, mm -hmm. Richard Perry had started a new label. You know, the famous producer, Richard Perry. It's hard to release a song that has the word summer in it in November. I would it, think, unless you know, it's in Australia or something. Yeah, exactly. You know? But uh, anyway, uh, if we did a show about my gripes about Columbia <laughs> Records, it would be a very long show. Um, but um, so, yeah, so, and they wanted to, they had this band called Night, N-I-G-H-T, mm -hmm. and they were very much in the Fleetwood Mac mm -hmm. mold as, you know, the four stages of stardom, as my friend says, is like, Walter who? Get me Walter. <laughs> Get me someone just like Walter. <laughs> Walter who? <laughs> okay, so we're in, you know, which stage we're in at that point. They were getting a Fleetwood Mac group out, in, uh, and they chose Hot Summer Nights okay. as the song for that and, and became top 10 in some countries, top 20 around the world. Pretty amazing for me. And then at the same time, John Stewart's George. record of gold was out on the charts. And so I got in the cab. I was in New York City and I got in the cab and it came on the radio. And I said, oh, man, turn that up. That's my song. I wrote that song. And he goes, oh, really? Oh, okay. And when the lights go down in the California yeah. town. It was like, Doo. 
And it's a good song. It is a great but song. You know, when I hear, when I because derivative, I think it's the word. Yeah, because for the for the pa- for the past week that I've been listening to your music, you know, to uh, to get reacquainted with, you know, I haven't listened to Not Shy for a long time. Yeah. And every time Hot Summer Nights would come on, because that's one that I, I would I like I like I want to hear it again. I want to hear it again when I'm in the car. And I kept thinking, what does this sound like? I didn't think that you ripped someone off. I, but I was like, something, there's another song that sounds like this song. And it's definitely gold. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was very much. And Lindsay didn't feel like it was similar? I don't know if we even ever talked about it, to tell oh, you the truth. A- um, you know, at the time, I had this hit cover version of it out. And so I felt like, well, I was getting mine. Yeah. And hey, you know, I owe a debt to the Kingston Trio, even though it was the Kingston Trio before him. Uh, you know, I, I was just very cavalier about it. But at yeah, that you, point. Ne- you never felt like you were going to well, bring, bring it up or take well, legal action or yeah, anything? I just, no, I didn't, I don't know. Maybe it was the drugs. I don't know what. <laughs> at the time, I just, it was like, oh, okay. I think that karma carried through mm-hmm. to 2009 because in 2009, everyone's favorite, rapper Eminem used Hot Summer Nights for his song We Made You. Yeah, that's got to be nice. And I never would have guessed that. I never would have found it. They could have gotten away with that. But I guess they had gone through enough litigation recently that they wanted to be up front. And I got to hand it to him. Yeah, that's great. And he was selling (laughs) CDs. This was his comeback CD. And it it actually got to top 10. And then... uh, didn't last very long, but still, I mean, I, I got some nice, you know, nice boost in the old catalog. So did, they, did he actually use a sample of the song? Well, that was the thing. When they said he used your song, I thought, okay, it's going to be a needle drop mm-hmm. where they quote the hook, the mm-hmm. guitar lick, or what I think is the hook, the ooh part, you know, which is why there's French versions, there's Swedish versions, Japanese versions. And I think it's that ooh, ooh part that, makes it more universal that people anybody in any language can do that i don't know that's just my guess now do you get a writing credit on the song yes you do oh i'm listed as one of five writers of uh that's sweet good for you and that you know that's good for them for doing the right thing exactly exactly um you know i i don't know why it took five writers for them to write that but (laughs) You know, that's their deal, and that was yeah. the deal we had to strike once once I approved that release. They played it for me over the phone. They were afraid to send me an MP3. That, <laughs> they that, were afraid it would but, leak? Yeah, that I would leak it out. Wow. So We, t- we, did, a, we did an episode a couple, a couple months ago where we just listened to all new music, the top 20 songs that were purchased on iTunes for that week. And so many of those have like seven, eight songwriters on them. And I was just like, what yeah. Dude, What are these guys doing? I know. It's crazy. You know, and I've been living in Nashville for the last 20 years. And it's very much a collaborative town mm-hmm. where, you know, it's, it's out of the ordinary to write by yourself. Well, you'll get a call up in the middle of the afternoon. Hey, you want to write some songs this weekend? Um, Stuff yeah, like that? Yeah. You know, it's like dating, really. It's you know unless you really know the people that you're working with, mm-hmm. it's like well let's write a song and let's see how it works. Let's out. write a hit on Tuesday at 10 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> we get three hours and we'll come up with you know and sometimes it works and sometimes it's drivel you know it's like and sometimes 
there's do you know who Henry Gross? Henry Gross was a one hit wonder before I was, nineteen seventy five. He had a song called Shannon. Don't know. And that. he had a very high voice. Okay. He was in Shanana actually too. Henry and I are friends there and we were writing one day and you know, taking things around, never really getting anywhere. In the last five minutes I said, Well, I got this idea for a title called, you know, Seven Day Weekend and he was like, Yeah, what a great idea. It's a good song title. And so I drove home. By the time I got home, he called me and he goes, I wrote the song. I was like, <laughs> oh, well, that's great. <laughs> Do you no. get any credit on that for coming I up with the I don't know what ever happened to that, actually. I don't know if it ever became released or not. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, collaboration is the key. And, and, you know, I wasn't, Hot Summer Nights became existent mm -hmm. because my wonderful producer, Lindsey Buckingham, said, well, okay, 77, I was on my first tour, and to impress Stevie, I, I said, well, I'll, I'll be glad to perform this song that Fleetwood Mac doesn't want to perform of hers, which was called Sisters of the Moon. And in fact, I was ending my set with it. It's a very powerful song. And that ended up on Tusk then. It did, uh, yeah. ultimately. Yeah, they did accede uh, to, uh, to using it. But... Um, but at the time, it was like, hey, Stevie, I'll do it, you know. And so, and I did it, and I did it well, I think. Um, I enjoyed doing it. And so this was going to be the big climax of the second record. And we got to doing the basic tracks, and Lindsay came into the studio and went, no, no, I don't think you should do this. He, poo -poo, but, he, he yeah, said he no to that one. The, the famous kibosh on it. And it was like, oh, but, but Lynn, you know, just go home and write another song to end the album with. Oh, easy. Sure. <laughs> and so that was Hot Summer Nights. And so, yeah, All that right. night I wrote Hot Summer Nights. It was hot. It was the middle of the summer. I was thinking about being in high mm -hmm. school and during the summer, how much fun it was to be able to play music a lot and not just uh, on the weekends or whatever. And the next morning we recorded what you heard there, what this, you played earlier. That's, um, that's a story that I hear a lot. Like, uh, born in the USA, they said, we need one more song. And Bruce wrote Dancing in the Dark. <laughs> and uh, Kansas left Overture, we need one more song. And Carrie Livgren, Livgren goes home and writes Carrie on Wayward Son. Yeah. I mean, it's that's insane. It is amazing when stuff like that happens. Your back's against the wall. You're going to write that hit. Yeah, and, and, it, and it turned out to be that. And even, you know, at that time, I wasn't thinking so much writing a hit. I was thinking about something that would be some kind of an emotional climax for the record, mm -hmm. you know, rather than the single, because the single is usually the first or second song, right? You know, and then the deep songs are later, like that, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, it it uh, it's crazy how how many covers there were. That there's the French version is called Van de Levla <laughs> by Deke Rivers, and there's a Swedish version called Flat Summer Dag, <laughs> and by Anne Greta. And there's, you know, the Japanese version, they sing in Japanese, except for the few English words, like Hot Summer Night, that they sing, which sounds a little funny. <laughs> and the German, I mean, who knew? You know, yeah. that's the weird thing as a songwriter. It's such a crapshoot. You just never know just what's going to happen. A song that you can think is the greatest thing you've ever written. People will hear it and go, yeah, well. Well, we're going to move on to 1979. You got your third album on Columbia. You are no longer... Um, you don't, you're a different producer. Well, yeah, me. Yeah. You. The album is <laughs> called Hi-Fi. Hi-Fi. We recorded this in Stevie Nicks's abandoned house. She was moving out of a house in the Hollywood Hills. We had done some demos mm -hmm. in her basement 
with a 16 track recorder and thought they sounded great so and this was the new wave era and the pop you know so uh, we went for it let's hear uh, that's that ah that's a good one In the future's always hazy world is the light But I'm not alone When you take my hand You'll be a woman I'll be the man Hold me Trust me Let's be what we must be Well, I'm yours You're mine Are you one of these musicians that does not like the term pop music? No, I'm fine with pop music. Yeah, because like I, I, I would call like that's a great pop rock tune. Yeah, that's just yeah, it's fun. It makes you feel good, and that's I, I love. That's the kind of music I love. Well, I appreciate I mean, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do too. You know, I, I, and I think somehow that comes out of the Beach Boys, maybe mm-hmm. of their kind of, you know, elevating the trivial details of teenage life into these grand epic songs and things i think it's uh, you know it's very much a thread that runs through much of my writing i guess and this 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 hi-fi album has a a lot of great fun tunes on it i don't know i don't know how familiar people might be with it i will tell you all this music we're playing is on itunes yes it is go get it i'm out there a lot of times you know artists like i'll go to itunes i go oh what's that song and then and it's not on there. I'm like, how do they not have their songs on iTunes? Yeah, I know. I found that for with the Kinks. You were playing the Kinks earlier yeah. when I searched out them at first. I think they're up there now. Yeah, I got the but for a, yeah for a while. There's like there's songs that just yeah. and I always just think that everything's on iTunes or yeah, on Amazon. And you know, it's the great thing about the future is like, yeah, okay, I miss albums. I miss mm-hmm. that whole process. Yeah. but. Boy, it's great in the middle of the night to think of a song and go, oh, wow. Yeah. And there it is. You've got it on A your, dollar. I have it. Yeah. And I, you know, and so the way that this evolved, the Hi-Fi album, the third album. So after. I Nut, love the album cover, Nut too. Shy. Well, thank I you. I think it's a really cool yeah. album cover. I love the font. I, Kyle and I talk about album covers all the time. Oh, like great. we're weirdos, but oh, I, I, I think it's a great album cover. Yeah. Well, that was the ethic of the day. It was like we had been on the road for seven months that year. The band was tight. We had done these demos that sounded pretty cool in the context of the day of, you know, of new wave. Yeah, it is very new wavey, power punky, and yeah, yeah, and skinny tie. Yeah, right. And you know, you 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 blend with the times and do what you do and hope that it fits in that kind of thing. And so we started recording this, and this uh, A and R man from Columbia who signed me originally, a guy named Don Ellis, not the trumpet player. Mm -hmm. He came in and he listened to what we were doing and he said, this is perfect for what this time is. All right, this cool. is going to be great. It's going all the way. A month later, Don Ellis was at RCA and the guy who took over from him heard what we were doing. And hated it. Jack Crago was his name. And he came in and he went, uh, uh, where's Stevie? Where's, where's Lindsay oh, and Stevie? Boy. Well, you know, you didn't sign them, remember? Yeah. Um, you know stepping out myself you know (laughs) and so it was kind of adversarial for that whole album and the tour that we had booked they withdrew the tour support i put it all on my gold american express card (laughs) i regretted that for 10 years it uh, was a big mistake um but 
for the short amount of the tour that we did do, people that I had met the year before mm-hmm. as Magnet was being, you know, going up the charts. Yeah. This year they're going, well, what's with Columbia? You know, they're they're coming in here saying, you're probably not going to like this. It doesn't have Stevie Nicks on That's it. That's not the way you promote. I know. Do you bring the album in and say, you're not going to like this? Well, tell me about it. <sighs> so at that point, I said, well, I'll, let's get out of this deal. This is, you know, bullshit. We don't want to be with this. You know, but you have a six-album deal at that point. Yeah, and this is so only halfway through. Yeah. It. So they, but they don't yeah. let you go because the next album is also in Columbia. Well, they don't, yeah, and they persuade me. They don't, they don't help you sell records, but they don't want to let you go. Right. Well, that was their theory. You know, I think it, it showed best in uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears in Chicago, which were kind of two groups that were doing the same thing. Yeah, and yeah. they had one so that they could promote both, you know. Yeah, they even had the same producer. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, what's his name? Garcia. Garcia, yeah. I can never say that right. name, but yeah. But uh, in the beginning, I think one, they signed both so that they wouldn't compete with one mm-hmm. another. So they, they, could they, they could make all the money yeah, on both right. bands. Yeah, and you know... And I was fed up with spending six months of my life investing it in these songs, this album, this next release, and for them to dismiss it within a month or two at the most. If you didn't have independent promotion, you know, you were done. Yeah. You didn't. That's disappointing. You know, and, you know, obviously I I saw the benefits of both sides of that because I was a very much a priority the year before. Yeah. And, And, you know whatever so but i was convinced uh, okay we'll do one more and see how it goes and the fourth album which was called the last stroll mm-hmm. if there you know there's a little hint in there i mean magnet steel is a stroll and like you, you couldn't call it the last hurrah but you went <laughs> but, with the last yeah stroll. you yeah. know this is easily be it and in fact it was um it uh, it was produced by a guy who had worked with the Beach Boys and worked with 2020. And he liked to mix with headphones on. Mm-hmm. He liked to mix with with fluorescent lights on. <laughs> he liked for us to record the whole album at his house. And then we'll go in and record it in Sound City. We'll record it twice then. Yeah. And I, in fact, I wonder where that other one is. Um Earl Mankey is his name, mm-hmm. and Earl is a nice enough guy. How did you get hooked up with him? Do you do you have a, do you get to choose him, or do they? The, does the record the company? new A and R man, the West Coast A and R man at Columbia, suggested him, and uh, you know I met with him, and I liked his credentials. You know, it seemed like mm-hmm. he might have a, a pretty good, and he, you know, except for when it got down to the mixing part, he was okay. Yeah, I mean. You know, I it wasn't quite the magic that I had come to know and love with with Lindsay and Stevie. Uh, back in back in the day, nineteen eighty, going into making this fourth album, if you had your choice of producers back then, who would you have? Who would have been your like dream producer to produce your fourth album? Honestly, at that point, I think it would have been me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, which is kind of what the last one was, the yeah. hi fi one was. I got the chance to do that, but I felt like I was growing as a producer in that. Well, the, yeah. the, the Hi-Fi album does sound better than the last Stroll album, in my opinion. Yeah. Let's hear another song off Hi-Fi. Let's hear Hi-Fi Love. There's a video of this, by the way. Well, when there from the day I met you, I'd have bet that you could take 
That sounds like a song that Linda Ronstadt could have got her uh, vocals around pretty nicely yeah, too. Yeah. That's Annie, of course, singing. Mm-hmm. Annie McLoon in there. Now, um, speak. Now, when we come to the last stroll, the this album cover, it's just a picture of you. It doesn't seem like there's much thought put into it. Did you not care at that point, or <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, to some degree, yeah. I I, I wanted to break the deal mm-hmm. at, before this album, and so I mean. It wasn't so much under protest. Right. And I mean, I love the fact that I get to wear that go-go shirt. That You know, that shirt on there has famous uh, connections. It, I don't know. Tell me. Okay, well, Jan and Dean, who were, you know, big favorites of mine, mm-hmm. they had this, um, I think it was the uh, Ride the Wild Surf album, but it might have been the Tammy show, the T-A-M-I show, which was a famous concert mm-hmm. in 1965. Yeah, James 66. Brown. Yeah, the Stones, everybody was, it was an amazing, the Beach Boys were on it, and Jan and Dean were the hosts, and they wore this go-go shirt, which is from the Whiskey A Go-Go, okay. and uh, it just was iconic to me that he, was, and he led me the thing to uh, to wear, but, but you know, I mean, it, it's the first, you know, the second album anyway, certainly Not Shy, didn't have a lot going on in the cover, except no, but it's got trying like to be, it's got, trying it's, to be the it's a little art, first arty, Beatles artier, album, yeah. And again, that's another Dean Torrance connection. Dean uh, was the art director on that. Yeah, because that's yeah, because he went into that after Kitty Hawk uh, graphics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's listen to. Uh, I do. I really like this song off the last roll. Let's listen to uh, Tuesday Wild. Yeah. It didn't work. Say it didn't work. Did, are you saying that you didn't get to meet Tuesday well yes, because that's of this what I'm song? Saying, yes. <laughs> that's funny that you. Now I never noticed it before. You bring up the, the the mixing, and it does. It sounds a little thin. Yeah. But that. But it kind of. But it also works a little bit. Well, for you know, that was the, the style era. Of music that, that was, you're doing. Yeah. yeah. That that was that kind of new wavy era that we were doing there, and that. Uh, I got I, and I got two more queued up. You tell me which one I should play: first date, last date, or heart. Oh, well, there's interesting reasons for each one. Well, maybe we'll um, hear them both then. Well, Heart it would be nice to hear. Heart was written by my good friend from Claremont, uh, Earl Shackelford. And uh, he and I were in the band that played at the Troubadour when I got my deal. Okay. And Earl is a great singer, great writer. And uh, I actually, he's my most covered artist i mean i've written just about every song that's on all my albums except the Heart ones that he wrote Girl next door yeah. okay and there's one that john wrote that uh, surfing and driving so, all right but, let's listen but to yeah heart was your heart yeah oh, i know that you've been broken oh, you leave yourself wide open oh, you plan to go where you go 
so that's a great that's a very that, nice song and later on in my later albums i recorded one called let go which was one of his songs mm-hmm. and um she's not the girl next door a oh, strange love affair that was the other one that i did on the later albums that is very cool he was a great writer he just died a couple of years ago no oh, i'm sorry to yeah, hear that i am too but uh so uh so the last role that's your last role with columbia how do you yeah. get out of the they're just you're well, not happy with them and they're yeah. They're not happy with you, but that's their fault, in my opinion, yeah. from what we're hearing. It, uh, you know, it took a while. It took a little while. And Greg Lewerk, of course, is the one who did most of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not privy so much to right. what, what went down. Um, so what are you allowed to do and not do until you're off the label? Are you just in a holding pattern? Yeah, I mean, I would do demos and I'd continue sure, to you write. Sure, you can write. I was always writing and I was performing as much as I could, but not as much as I'd like. And um, it, coming up to that next album. Which is like a comeback album, kind of. It's yeah, as weird as that sounds. No, it's, you're right. It's three, it's three years between albums. Right. This next album comes out in 83. I do want to ask you something about this album before we... on. So on... On the first album, there's a couple of cheerleaders. And then on this album, Wild uh, Exhibitions, there's a couple of cheerleaders in the back. Are they the same? <laughs> Are they the same girls? No, but uh, the same name is one of the. On the first album was Selma and Tammy. And this is Tammy and Jennifer. And uh, Tammy, the, the dark-haired one leading the pack there on, the, on Wild Exhibitions, mm-hmm. became my wife. And that, yeah. And that, is she still your wife? Um, she's my ex-wife, but she, we're <laughs> living together. If you want to, oh, okay. we were separate. We we, we divorced in two thousand four, and she moved back in last April. Now, are you living together uh, romantically? Uh, well, we're being friends at this point. <laughs> All right, you know, we're helping one another out. All right, nice. But, and that's her sister Jennifer. Is the other new cheerleader on that uh, and what's what's the what's the obsession with cheerleaders (laughs) um once it was done then the way that it happened was the same photographer a guy named moshe Braca. yeah very famous photographer yeah and he had done the the silk degrees and uh, he uh, was making his name as a photographer he did an elo cover famous for keeping the border in the prints he Mm -hmm. would print his own and that was part of his deal but he had done a, a photo essay for Rolling Stone just before my first album. And it was called High School USA. Okay. And so he had just taken pictures of all these cheerleaders. And of course, you know, cheerleaders. Who doesn't like cheerleaders? Yeah, right. Um, and that's how those two girls wound up on my first album cover. And that's a, a Stevie's 280 SL behind me on the cover there. And that, that picture was taken on up on Beverly Glen where there's now huge condos and Right, houses. you can't take that picture up there anymore. No, it won't no, look that pretty. It's definitely not there anymore. Okay, so this label you're on uh you're on uh Backstreet yes, Records. Yes, Backstreet Records. Is that and a subsidiary of MCA maybe? Backstreet was Tom Petty's label. Yes, that's what it was. And uh, in September 78 I did a two-week tour with Tom. Um one gig he'd open for me the next gig i'd open for him and we alternated as we did these two weeks about you know eight or nine dates i guess was it the heartbreakers yeah yeah that was uh before he had broken broken through with any kind of top 40 Mm -hmm. thing but he had the fm 
album credibility and i had the am right so we both wanted what the other had it was a nice blend actually it was a great show and i you know i think i held my own with him during those times um Good guy, fun guy he to hang out okay. with. Okay, we he didn't hang out much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guys in the band hung out more. Uh, Stan Lynch and uh, Ben Ma and uh, Mike. It's always there. interesting how the f- the front man is the one that maybe wants to retreat. Well, and, sure, yeah, you know, I mean, and I guess I'm somewhat did that myself. But you seem kind of extrovert. You seem extroverted. To yeah, me. you know, the the not shy title is ironic. <laughs> That's supposed to be ironic. So you get, uh, you have kind of a hit off of this and, album. Well, yeah, this is, so this is, after we get, we Do you want to see this? It looks like you're reaching for it. No, wanna, no, I'm okay. just uh, gesticulating here. Um, it, uh, it came about partly from doing that tour with Tom mm-hmm. and getting out of the, uh, the CBS deal. It would, came down to either signing with Atlantic uh, with a guy named Les Garland or Danny Bramson, who was the president of Backstreet. And he made a, a, a good case, the fact that he wanted to show that he could have a hit record that wasn't a Tom Petty record. And I wanted to show that I could have... A hit that a, wasn't a, a hit Columbia. Wasn't, well, not so much, but not so much an M.O.R.-ish kind of crooner song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I still contended all these years that I was a rocker and not... You know, a one-hit wonder crooner, yeah. Teen Idol, and that, that was, you know, part of Colombian mishandling. I mean, okay, granted, some of my ideas are a little bit obscure, <laughs> but what I thought the slogan for selling Not Shy as it came out should have been mm-hmm. was, don't not buy Not Shy. <laughs> and they weren't digging that. And they were like, what, you're telling them not to buy? No, look. No, don't no, it's don't not negative. buy it. Yeah, buy it. Get, get that, uh. Oh, people are dumb. And, is what and they so were what they put out was this picture of the record and not buy or not. They didn't say not buy, <laughs> not pie. I mean, just these silly rhymes that had nothing to do with the record. Wow. And, and then not shy, with the same you know font and everything. It's like. That is dumb. It was like, well, how, what does that say? What, I, what it says is you can't think of how to promote this, right? Oh, my God. So, yeah, it was pretty crazy. So this first... Okay, so then, so Danny Bramson mm-hmm. was eager to do this, and so we did a one-album deal with them at MCA. And um, it uh, was a fun record to do. It, uh, it was Dwayne Scott and myself. Again, reuniting right. to do this. Um, I think we got a good sound. I think we did a good record. Um, the single from it is a song called Fool Moon Fire. And kind of a play on words. Well, it's not okay. full moon. Right, it's right. F- full, full moon. moon. Full moon. And I am, uh, you know, a child of the moon by my zodiac. <laughs> and so, you know, I, and, and I was always a very much of a nocturnal person. And so... Things that I do in the middle of the night, I normally don't do during the day kind of thing. It's like, you know, let's let's find the werewolf in our own soul kind of. That's basically the, uh, the profound truth of Full Moon Fire. And I had the storyboard. I, I come from Forest Hills where Michael Landon grew up and Michael Landon did. I was a teenage werewolf. 
So I wanted right. to do, I was a teenage werewolf kind of video, and, and that's kind of where we went with it. Um, the fact that we had the whole universal library to use with very little recompense for them, mm -hmm. it was great. So that that's why we, I don't know if you've seen the video for this or it's not. It's been a while. Yeah, well, this, this song came out a good eight or nine months before Thriller. Mm -hmm. So my... I'm not saying that they stole their idea for Thriller from mine, but it sure is kind of odd that, that it's, you know, I go pick up my girlfriend, which was my soon-to-be wife. Mm -hmm. We go to the movies. At the movie, we're watching, you know, wow, this Lon is... Chaney Jr. as the werewolf. Yeah. And he's turning into the werewolf, and I start turning into the werewolf, too. And you, we get, like, this plastic glove hand that has, like, a werewolf mm -hmm. hand. And I go, oh my God, spill the popcorn, run out of the theater. And I'm fully a werewolf. Mm -hmm. and, and they actually did glue each hair on my face. But they didn't do the time lapse right. to show me turning into it. So right. I could have been anybody, yeah. even though it was me. And then, you know, and there's a busking guitar player out in front. And I grab the guitar and run amok through Los Feliz. <laughs> and they corner me. And, and, oh, and then the, so I'm followed by basically it looks like the townspeople from the werewolf movie. They've got the, the pitchforks and the, and the torches and they're chasing me around and it's silly. And did you, know, you did you like, enjoy making this video? Well, to some degree, except when they had to burn my face to get the hair off for the very last scene, we shot it all in one night. Mm -hmm. So it took a good two, three hours to glue the hair on and, you know, probably half an hour or an hour to take it off. The last scene is shot as the sun's coming up and I'm cornered in an alley and they kind of do a dissolve from the werewolf me to okay. the real me. And then Tammy, my girlfriend, comes up in the Mustang and picks me up and I, everybody's bopping along to me playing guitar in the corner as I'm not a werewolf anymore. And, you know, the, it's, it's silly, but it's... Uh, well, let's hear the song. Apparently inspirational to some people. Well, it's a great song. Let's hear it. Thank you. It got to number 38 or 36, I think. This should have done way better than that. Yeah. Let's go right into Maybe Maybe. Let's hear that also. from. Well, that's good. Actually, Lin, David Lindley plays uh, Slide on both those songs. Well, yeah, actually, it's Electric Fiddle on, on Full Moon Fire and, and, yeah. and Electric Slide. Yeah, on, and you also have, uh, Lindsay's also on a couple of songs. Yeah, Christine McVie sings some uh, background vocals yeah, and, on the song. Yeah, uh, Nikki Hopkins is on there, too. So, again, you're working with a high-caliber group of people. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's hear Maybe Maybe. Try being nice to me Is it so hard? Well, it didn't used to be 
you recorded these first five albums all at Sound City. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Yeah. That's well, pretty cool. Well, except for the Hi-Fi, which was basically at Stevie's That's right, house her house. Up in the hills. Now, Skip Edwards played keyboards on this. Now, tell me who Skip Edwards is. Skip Edwards I'm, is a great player who mm-hmm. played with me, played with Johnny Rivers, He's uh, and he's played with Dwight Yoakam for a while. Okay. And after we did this record and did our little tour for it, uh, Skip went off and started playing with Dwight Yoakam. And I don't know how familiar you are with Dwight's oeuvre, but uh, he has a song called Fast As You, which came out after this song. Okay. That Does it sound... sounds an awful lot like this song to me. What is happening with the, with, with well, the people stealing the genius that is Walter Egan? Well, that's, uh, you know, this is my the sour grape story of Walter Egan. But, I you know, I don't think I'm making this stuff up. If you, if you can pull up fast as you, if I don't know if you want to do that or not. No, I don't care. Yeah, let's do it. Just the opening of it is, is a guitar riff and maybe, and starts with the word maybe. I mean, it's, it's just, it may be unconscious. Okay. I can hear it. They keep doing maybe this and maybe that. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then it changes, but but still, I mean. Yeah, it's not cool. <laughs> no, and so after um, the Wild Exhibition album and my uh, soon-to-be bride mm-hmm. became my bride in 84, and so I became a married man yeah. for the first time, and then our son came along in 85. And, you know, at that point, it's like, well, okay, let's do, let's concentrate on this for a while, even though I kept playing and playing around L.A., I, you know, and I was living in L.A., but at this time, I also started to have pressures to go, well, there's a family here now, and, you know, we can't just struggle for your art so much anymore. Right. And I, that at that point, I started exploring alternate careers. I went to the Los Angeles Broadcasting School, which was down where the Kodak Center is okay. now, and um, the old Hollywood Hotel used to be there. You're going to be a radio guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I had done radio in, in college. What the heck? You, you know, why not? Um, I explored my uh, game show career. I was on a show called Catchphrase, and I came that close to winning the big prize. I won five nights of that. I was on Wheel of Fortune, and ah. I was also on um, Rock and Roll Jeopardy. Oh, my gosh. But um, I didn't win the big prize on either one. I was on Scrabble. I won for two or three days on Scrabble. With are these Lurie. are these appearances on game shows? Are these on YouTube anywhere? Can we I, find these? They're on the game show network, so I would imagine they're up there somewhere. I've got some tapes at home. And they, they introduced you as, you know, well, yeah, singer-songwriter, recording artist, yeah, Walter Egan. Right, right. And and Chuck Woolery was like, I don't know, did you do anything I might recognize? No, Chuck. You know, Not that you would recognize. Flashing his watch. Yeah. And uh, Charlie Tuna was the announcer. And so Charlie Tuna's going, well, yeah, this is a great, you know, we love it. You know, it was, yeah, really, yeah. it was really cool. He was neat. But uh, yeah, you know, it's casting about to see what I could do to, uh, you know, I did some writing. I, I was a book reviewer for the West Coast Review of Books. 
at a penny a word, I did the book reviews. A penny a word. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. I got to read a lot. I like to read. Um, and so, and I did some very menial things mm-hmm. as well, just kind of, what am I doing this, you know, kind of stuff. And I started doing substitute teaching and I was teaching a sub whatever, not teaching so much. Yeah. yeah. Know, it's crowd control. As yeah. Much as I anything. was going to say babysitting. Yeah, but this was, I did it in Burbank. I was living in Burbank. That was my last, uh, hurrah here. And then, I, and then you moved to Nashville. Then I inherited, no, I inherited the house I grew up in, in Queens. Moved the family back there, and that's okay. where my daughter was born a couple of years later. And so my son was born in L.A. He lives in Brooklyn. Okay. Daughter was born in Queens. She lives in L.A., and I live in Nashville. And are either of the children uh, in the music business? No, they're not. Do they have musical ability? I think they do. Um, actually, my son, when he was living at home, sort of fought the uh, my hey you want to play guitar yeah, yeah. And he'd be doing scratching and stuff and uh he went to college and started playing guitar and he would come home and he'd go he'd plug in his ipod and he'd go hey dad can you show me how to play and it'd be you know a lonnie mac or a link mm-hmm. ray song it'd be yeah all right <laughs> and so you know those are better than camping trips for me that was like that's cool you know finally and then you know he drifted away from it and but now he's living in Brooklyn, and apparently he's writing music, wow. according to what his mother tells me. Now, does your uh, your daughter who lives out here, does she come see Dad play when, when you're in town? She does. Not always, mm-hmm. but she does. Um, and she can't understand anybody who doesn't live for music, even though she's a fan mm-hmm. more than uh, a participant. Yeah. Um, although I tell her, I think she does have a good voice. She certainly has as good a voice as I ever had, you know, it's, but, uh, you have to come by it. I, you know, and Johnny Z of early Malibu's fame mm-hmm. and later Malibu's fame, his son, Johnny is now actually making it in the music business. He was in a band called Terraplane Sun for a while. And they had a song called get me golden that, okay. that kind of filtered around. Yeah, but it's one of it's a weird business these days. They they had like commercials, and so they did really well. But they did an album that didn't get released. That story, one of those stories, yeah. and then they broke that band up, and and Johnny and um, his partner in the band started a thing called the Palms, and they've been doing really well. You know, they they play their music in uh, Nashville anyway on the Lightning One Under there, so <clears throat> you know. I didn't want to force my kids into the music business, right. and certainly. But sometimes it just comes naturally. Well, that's it's it, just, and, you know. and I wouldn't discourage them from it. And if they wanted to do it, I would certainly do everything I could to help. But you know, I've continued the substitute teaching because it allows me to work when I want to, mm-hmm. and then and I do it in one school in Nashville. In Franklin, actually, it's just south of Nashville. Um, but uh, you know. It's it in the summertime. There are a couple of camps there that are music oriented. There's one called the Jam, that's music all the time. Okay, and there's another one called Kids on Stage, which has other arts. But I go there and I teach songwriting and mentor bands. Well, that must be very rewarding work. It is very much so. Really get a kick out of that. There, I'm always inspired by these young people and. You know, especially the ones that like the kind of music I like, right. too, which is even more heartening. Um, 
there's a, a girl who I worked with. I played bass on her demos named Kelsey Ballerini. I know who Kelsey yeah, Ballerini Kelsey is. She's is now, blowing up big time. She really is, and she's great. She's a wonderful girl. I actually worked on the show uh, for ABC called Greatest Hits, and she they hired her to be co-host with Arsenio Hall. So I was around her um, for three weeks. She oh. was a fantastic girl. She really is. She's yeah. a very sweet Sweet, girl. yeah. And talented and, and personable, and she had never hosted anything before yeah. reading off a teleprompter. She nailed it. She's very real, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, which is nice. Yeah, so, so, you know, I, I get to meet very talented young people. And so I probably, you know, vicariously get a little bit of what I might have gotten out of my kids that way. But I mean, you know. Yeah, you don't know what the kids be, are going to They got to be what they They got to be what they want to be. So let me ask you this. You, uh, I asked you if you wanted to bring your guitar and maybe sing. And you did bring your guitar. Do you still, do you feel like singing? Is the voice, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's. it's 1130. Yeah. You said you're a nocturnal person. I am. I am. Well, but it's totally up to you. Well, and if you say no, I won't, I will cut this part out. I, I won't put you on the spot and then yeah, you say no. no. <laughs> I'm sure I'm, I came prepared to do that. I can do that. I don't know how it's going to sound. But you can, and you yeah. can sing whatever you want. Well, I was going to sing one of the tunes from, from the new album. Then so that's what you should whichever do. of the other one that you play, I'll play the other whatever one. one you want to sing. We'll do it the other way. Whatever you want to sing, then I'll play out with the other song. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Sure. So either Crazy Rain or Old Photographs. Right. Um, I think I'd probably rather play Crazy Rain. All right. Just because. That's how you're feeling. Yeah. I mean, that'll that'd be more energetic. All right. I'll let you get set up. Okay. All right. So we're, uh, we're, we're here. Uh, Walter's got his guitar on. He's got the headphones on. We're all ready to go. So, Walter, this is going to be Crazy Rain, and yeah. let's hear about it. Well, this is a song from my first album, or actually my new album, uh, my first digitally available album. And um, it's, it started out to be about a real rainstorm. In, in Tennessee, apparently you're not allowed to have just a regular rainstorm. It has to make the news every time you have... The weather has to be biblical in the, in the Bible Belt. Anyway, so I left the house to go to the store. It was about a half mile away. By the time I got to the store, suddenly it was a torrential downpour, and I got the idea for this song. And as I was writing it, I, it, I like to play with words, and of course the word rain can be spelled a couple of times. And this was uh, during the, uh, the turnover in government, let us say, of the old to the new, the current thing. And so it just seemed a very appropriate uh, metaphor there. So this is called Crazy Rain. All at once the crazy rain came calling That was when I felt myself start falling How I wish that I dream that I was sleeping Woke 
wake up sudden with a start heart was beating Thunder under skin Lightning flashes in Nightmare I'm awake in crazy rain sounded great thanks fantastic that's a great song thank you appreciate that now are you more are you comfortable with your voice now now, now that well, you're you're uh, an elder statesman you've been <laughs> doing this all your life yeah to some degree i am but i i still think everybody sings better than me i enjoy <laughs> i'll tell you that i enjoy doing it there i think there's here's my philosophy of the world there's the inside person and the outside person mm-hmm. and the inside me loves to sing and loves to perform it and loves to think that they're doing really well mm-hmm. and the outside me doesn't like to listen to it so much <laughs> <laughs> so it's that uh, dynamic of that and uh, you know to go back to three hours ago when we started talking this whole, <laughs> it my, whole been that long. Yeah, my whole career was nurtured when i was in high school where john zambetti was my best friend mm-hmm. and i was we were doing the same thing we both had started writing songs and we both we're the perfect audience for one another. We'd get together after school in this little closet room, and he'd play his new song for me, and I'd go, yeah, man, that's, that's really cool, yeah, yeah. And then I'd go home that night, and I'd write a new song and play it for him the next day. And we lived in this bubble of, of you know, non-reality, uh-huh. but, but, you know, to some degree, we were doing it. We just thought we were better than we probably were, but... You know, that's the way but, you start out. Yeah but, yeah, yeah, but you have to have some confidence. Well, yeah. Or else... You do. And so you believe, you look at, you go to a Hard Day's Night, and you come out of it, and you're the Beatles. You're, you're, do, you're acting, this is 
this is it. That's this right. Cool. So yeah, you know, and and I think I've adjusted to my cocoon of thinking that it's okay, <laughs> you know. And I mean, I love to record, and uh, you know, I'm doing new stuff all the time. So that's mo probably as much of well, I played McCabe's a few weeks ago. And I loved doing that. That was a great... McCabe's is a great, great venue. It's, it is. It's a great audience that is listening. And that was just you, the way you just played now, just you and guitar. Right, yeah. for the most part. And then the Malibus came in for a few songs at the end, so it was kind of fun. But yeah, you know, I mean, I, I love playing with a band. I love being a rocker. I love being up there. Mm -hmm. But I realize as I play these songs acoustically, I'm able to maybe bring a little bit more of what I think I put into them out as I do that I guess and that's kind of what I'm trying to get into kind of the song and story you know name dropping yeah yeah for for fun and profit um you know <laughs> I've I've written a, a thinly disguised autobiography I was going to ask about if there's a if there's a Walter Egan book yeah there is it's but it's, I wrote it in the third person and I kind of you know buffered my more famous friends and I know that you know, when people read these celebrity mm -hmm. tell-all books, they want to know about the real people. And so I, I doubt that I'll ever, you know, certainly while everyone's still alive anyway, you know. Is there is there that much more. dirt that people would be uh, offended by? <laughs> or, or, or do you think at this point everyone would just be like, yeah, well, that that's what happened, and oh well. Well, I'm not sure what everybody would think. Mm -hmm. I'm just not sure what they would think, you know. Yeah. I mean, if... If Stevie didn't describe our sessions together in her book, then I'm not sure if I should do it in mine. You know, right. this kind of thing. And, yeah. And 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 the crazy nights that uh, Lindsay and I might have wasted. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's probably best unsaid. I think you know people can imagine things. And so you will know, I be, might. Will in the book will will he be called Binzy Luckingham? Is that how we'll do it? And then <laughs> that is uh, actually one of his nicknames. <laughs> you know, it's uh, yeah. It, no one would ever guess that would be him. Yeah. Uh, Walter, thank you so much. You did a show tonight, and then you drove here after the show to give us uh, yeah. your time and your stories. Well, and I really appreciate that. I want to thank you for all the music. Yeah. I want to encourage people. Uh, if you like the songs we played tonight you're probably going to like all of these albums. So go to iTunes, buy this music, uh, seek out the new tunes uh, from, from Myth America and from the newest album, True Songs. And um, thank you, Kyle. And I'm just going to do the quick plug for Bose, and then we're going to play out with one of the new songs called Old Photographs. So just so everyone knows, as you always know, this episode of the Rock Solid Podcast was brought to you by Bose, the engineers behind some of the world's best audio products, including the Bose QuietComfort 35 noise-canceling headphones. Bose literally invented this technology over 40 years ago because they believe that by blocking out unwanted sounds and distractions, you can get immersed in what you truly love. All of the on-air talent here uses the Bose QuietComfort 35 headphones during our recording because we want to hear what you're going to hear. Bose, get closer. So uh, are you, you're on, uh, you have a website? 
I do. By the way, these are great headphones. Aren't they I, amazing I headphones? Yeah. I've, uh, Everyone that's in here is like hearing myself are... again on with these, with this such clarity and it's uh, yeah. The, the I can't great. give you. I know you said that. I cannot give you one of these pairs. If that's what you're trying to do, <laughs> no, Walter, no, I can't no. Do I'm it. just this unsolicited <laughs> testimonial. I so, do have a website, WalterEgan.com. You're I have on a Facebook. Facebook page. There's Walter Egan and the Alternative Band, and there's Walter Lindsay Egan. That's me. No Twitter though. I haven't tweeted. Okay, not yet. No, I. You know, it just. I don't Doesn't see, interest I don't you. see the point. All you right. Know, it's, it's, that makes sense. It's enough to keep up with these other ones for me. We have a Twitter uh, for the show. It's at Rock Solid Show. I have a Twitter at Pat underscore Francis. And Kyle is at Kyle Dotson Funny. I do have an Instagram that I've never really used. The only time I ever used my Instagram to, to make a nice, neat little bow on our little conversation okay. is when I went to see Tegan and Sarah play at this a place called the Marathon Music mm-hmm. Works in, in Tennessee. And my daughter was there with me. She said, okay, here's how you do it. And then she said <laughs> she'd do it for me. And then she never did. And then I thought, well, whatever. I'm so excited that you like Tegan and Sarah. Uh, I mean, they, they've been around for almost 20 years now. Oh, so yeah. but, um, but still, you, you still seem like a person that uh, seeks out artists and wants to hear what's happening out there. And that's cool. I definitely do. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, oldies... You can't live oldies, you know. I mean, you gotta you gotta have a little injection of some new blood once in a while. You definitely do. You mean, yeah. Not even only, if you listen to it and say that's not for me, at least you're expanding. Well, yeah. And if these songs that were so evocative to you or so meaningful to you at an earlier time in your life, it gets eroded by hearing it as you're sitting on the freeway mm-hmm. every day or whatever, and and you know. I don't even want to get into it, but yeah, you know, uh, yeah, new new music is very important, whether like doing it myself or or finding it with other people. And that's why I love hanging around with young people and see what they're listening to. There's a band called Balancing Composure I like a lot. That uh, is pretty cool new band. Balancing Composure. Yeah, you have a twinkle in your eye when you're talking about this. I love it. Well, I enjoy that yeah. music, you know, and I I really got into Lana Del Rey there for the last few years. <laughs> Not so. I'm, you know, mixed on the new album, but the mm-hmm. one before this, Honeymoon, I think I played it every day for probably a year and a half. That's, see, that's cool. That's pretty bizarre. That, yeah, <laughs> but it's cool. Yeah, it was cool, you know. It's, it's nice to find music that you love and that's new music that you can paint your life with, you know. It's, uh, and uh, before I go, uh, I for the listeners, I have uh, I have a couple of CDs and a couple of vinyl uh, albums that I'm going to have, um, I'm going to, I'm going to convince Walter to sign those and, uh, and then I'll give those away to the listeners, uh, probably the, the day after this drops. So again, thank you, Walter Egan for all the great music. Thank you, Pat. And thank thank you you for your time. Mm -hmm. And Kyle, if you could play us out with old photographs from 2017's true songs by Walter Egan. Looking at me, looking at you Right there on the desk Looking at me, looking at you Faces in a frame What did they see, what did they do Always seem the same Looking at me, looking at you Maybe you think We live on and on 
cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader